Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16, 17, though I'm going to assume that many of you know this verse by memory. It's one of the most foundational truths in Christendom. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, every verse, every verse. Romans 15.4 tells us that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. All Scripture is God-breathed, as some translations has it. That's literally what it means. Not just divinely inspired, but God-breathed. Out of the very presence of God, the Scriptures that we have in our Bibles is God-breathed, divinely inspired. And it has a use and a purpose, foremost among them being the teaching that all come to the knowledge of the truth. And that is an important thing to know. God wants us to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's one of the reasons he's given us the scriptures. And when you stop to think about it, uh, and one of the most uh, uh, potent points that skeptics has is to say, well, the Bible is really just nothing but a book of fables and tales and, and stories. It's not divinely inspired. And if that were the case, we were to be pitied among all people, because what we are holding to as our faith would be utterly useless. The scriptures reveal the presence of God and the reality of the salvation that we have in him. And if they were not real, if they were not godly, inspired, and divine in every sense of the word, we were, we are to be certainly pitied among all people. There would be no resurrection. There would be no atonement. There would be no real Jesus other than perhaps one who had been martyred in the first century. But we know that we have a Jesus who made the sacrifice once and for all for our sins. He died for us in order that we might live. If God in his great wisdom and power were not capable of protecting his word and giving us a reliable essence of all that we need for faith and practice in our Christian life, we are to be really pitied as Christians. God is capable of protecting his word. And therefore, what we have today, regardless of whether you read the New American Standard, the English Standard Bible, the New International Version, or the New King James, or the authorized version that was done in the 17th century, it makes no difference. That word is divinely inspired in its original content, and what we have today is utterly reliable in every sense of the word. We can put confidence and faith in what we have. There is a fourfold purpose in the scriptures. First of all, it's teaching us. It is God's word teaching us. It's profitable or useful for doctrine, as the old authorized version says, and actually as the, uh, uh, some of the other more modern versions say. The, the word is profitable for teaching us the truth so that we can come to the knowledge of the truth. It's also useful for reproving, that is, to rebuke us. 
to expose error so that we might know the truth and hold and cling to that truth. It's also responsible for uh, correcting us to reorder our lives, to redirect us as we need so that as we practice our, our faith, as we walk in our daily life, we might do so according to the will of God. And lastly, it says it is useful or profitable for training and righteousness. And that's going to be the emphasis of our sermon this morning, though I'm picking out just one particular aspect of the utility of God's word. It is useful for training and righteousness. And what does that mean? We'll talk about that. And how does that differ from teaching? Because it is a dual purpose here of teaching us the correct doctrine, the truth, reproving us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Everyone, without exception, every one of us, whether we are believers who have put our trust in God for 50 years, or whether we are believers for five minutes, it makes no difference. We need to be trained. Training is an, is an eternal process, if you will. I shouldn't say eternal. It is a, a process that's going to take place all of our lives. It has a lot to do with what we would call sanctification, becoming like Jesus. That's what it's ultimately all about. We are to be trained according to that so that we might play a role in the production of fruit for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's look at some things that uh, we have on there in our, my, my PowerPoint presentation this morning. I trust that it will reinforce what we're trying to say here today. But let's talk about teaching as opposed to training. First of all, if you wanted to define it, and I did a lot of research on this, it, if you boil it down to its simplest terms, teaching is the impartation of knowledge. It's a transfer of knowledge, if you will, from the teacher to those who are being taught, to the pupils. We think of that usually in an academic sense, that we have teachers, and we've all had teachers in our lives, starting from kindergarten on, who helped us understand concepts and truth, hopefully. And as a consequence, they transferred that to us. They imparted that knowledge to us that we need to know in order to live properly and successfully. Training, on the other hand, is not just the impartation of knowledge. It's the practical application of knowledge so that we have the effective development of the skills or habits or whatever we need as children and adults to live uh, to and be competent and successful in every sense of the word. Training is usually associated with the commercial or the sports world. We talk about people training. We, we use another term for that. It's called practice in every sense of the word. Those of us who were trying, I can remember when my mother paid for my piano lessons. Uh, that was a fruitless endeavor, bless her heart, but nevertheless, she did. And uh, it, I had to practice in order to become proficient at playing the piano. Well, you know by the absence of my, I mean, absence from the keyboard, she was not very successful because I hated to practice. I can remember, though, when I was in high school, 
and I loved to run track. And there was one thing I had to do, was learn how to practice to increase my endurance and hopefully my speed. And I loved doing that, and I did it with great diligence, especially my junior year in high school, and was successful in terms of my, my endeavor to, uh, to prove myself as a trackman, if you will. All of us have had some exposure, if you will, in every aspect of our life to training. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because is this not really one of the primary reasons that we stand here and preach? To teach the gospel and to train disciples of Christ how to be fruitful, how to be successful in our endeavors in the Christian life? That's what it really all about. And the fact is, is that both training and teaching are a very important element. They, have a, they serve a very important function. Let's talk about the meaning of training for a moment. And we're going to explore the Greek word. I don't even want to try to pronounce it, but you see it here on the screen. It refers, basically, to the training of a child, bringing up a child, uh, discipline. And matter of fact, as you see in Ephesians 6, 4, it's even translated as discipline. It says, fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that word discipline is the Greek word pedeo. I think that's how you pronounce it. The Encarta Dictionary defines it in a very secular sense as the process of teaching or learning a skill or job. It's a process of improving physical fitness by exercise or diet. And that's one worry to look at it. But basically, if you looked at it in the Bible, the Greek word in Ephesians 6.4 is interpreted in the New American Standard and the English Standard Version as discipline, whereas in the NIV and the New King James, it's translated as training. So it is a synonymous term, and it relates to mostly how we raise children. We'll talk more about that further on. So it relates to the, not only the development of physical fitness, but other things as well. Let's talk about some different types of training with which we are all familiar. First of all, there is vocational or professional training. And nearly every single individual in this room has undergone something of that effect in our lives, in our careers, our jobs. We have been trained after we were taught the concepts of what we're all about. We were trained to do an effective job and how to apply the knowledge that we had learned to doing just that. I'll talk some more about how that happened in my own particular life, but that was one, that's an important phase to understand. That's usually what we think of when we talk about training. Also, there's on-the-job training, a more practical application of learning, of being taught, and learning to use what you're taught almost simultaneously. And that is called, as we called it in the Army when I was there in 1960 through 63, OJT. The Army likes to abbreviate everything. That means on-the-job training. And we had to go through six months of that before we were deployed to Europe at that time. There also is military training. And I'm talking about a more basic military training. Every single soldier or airman or marine our sailor goes through basic training. It's a fact because they have to be taught the things that are important to them 
in the performance of their job and their duties as a soldier or a Marine or whatever it might be. There is physical training, as I mentioned before. Every athlete, every single athlete, especially every Olympian, has to undergo rigorous training, regardless of what sport it might be. And there is the training that is common to performing artists. As I mentioned before, I certainly was not successful in training and being trained as a pianist, but there are those, praise God, like Sharon, like Rowena, like Claudia, and many others, who have been successfully trained and know how to do the job of producing beautiful music. And then there is spiritual training. And it doesn't specify this, but that's what training in righteousness is all about. First of all, the perfect example of spiritual training is what Jesus did with his disciples. It lasted for three years. Three years of on-the-job training, if you will. Three years of being trained in righteousness so that they might produce fruit after Jesus had empowered them at Pentecost. So think about how this all squares away. There's a reason for that, and we'll get into that uh, just in a minute or so. But the fact is, is that God has enabled us by training to be his witnesses, to be that Acts 1 family, that Christ-centered Acts 1 family that, that Paul talked about, that has become the theme of the Christian Missionary Alliance. We need to be trained in order to be a Christ-centered Acts 1 family to take the gospel to Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's a reason that we need this. If we're going to walk according in a manner that's according to our Lord, if we're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of him, in a manner that's worthy of Jesus, in a manner that's worthy of God the Father, we need to be trained in every sense of the word. I'd like to talk to you just briefly about the stages of training. I was exposed to this concept back in 1966. I heard it for the very first time. And it was in the midst of a sales training class that I heard this. The vertical axis, you see this is the typical matrix with four squares, uh, four rectangles, I, I will get a bit better said. But the fact is, is that its axis vertically relates to our consciousness, our awareness, if where we are, we can be unconscious, if you will, and become more conscious, more aware as we progress. The horizontal axis is relative to our competency. And so we start with the left-hand square, the bottom left-hand square. All of us begin, in some aspect or another, as unconscious incompetence. We don't even know what we know. We have no awareness, if you will, as we're induced to a completely new concept that this is something we are not even aware of. When we are born again, we're able to understand some of the great doctrines of our faith because they have to be spiritually appraised. And the the scriptures tell us that those who are worldly-minded, those who are of the flesh, are not going to understand these things. But as we come to know Jesus, we begin to understand what the salvation is all about and what it play, what role it plays in our life and how we live by faith in Christ Jesus day to day. We start as unconscious 
incompetence, if you will. And then we move, as we're being taught and trained, we move to a stage right above that called conscious competence. We are aware of what we need to know. We are aware that we are lacking in knowledge and how to live the way that we should. And as a consequence, we're in the process of acquiring that knowledge and being trained in the application of it in our lives. And then as we move across, as you see the arrows move here, it means that we become fully conscious competence. We are now, in every sense of the word, aware of what we need, and we are able to exercise it to the best of our abilities. We know what we know, and we're able to do it. We might have to think about it. And then we come to the last stage of learning, and this is applicable. Now, I'll tell you, this was applicable to me. I don't know if it was applicable to you. I won't be the judge of that, but it was applicable to me in many aspects of my life. Then we move, hopefully, to the final stage, which is we become unconscious competence. We don't even have to think about it. It comes naturally to us. It's something that's innate, innate in every sense of the word. We're able to get it done because it's just a natural thing for us to do. We know it that well. In the Christian life, this is a little more difficult to achieve because we never get to be a sinless person. At least I don't believe we do. The scriptures seem to bear that out according to what I've read. But the fact is, is that we do things naturally as we seek to know the will of God. It becomes the innate practice of how we live to pursue living according to his will. So therefore, we can reach that stage. There's another vertical uh, uh, particular illustration here. And, you know, Dick told me something last week, and I apologize. Because he said, you know, about 30% of men have a difficulty with, uh, with colors. And some of the, it would look at this, uh, this visual, and it might be uh, very difficult to read. The fact is, it just shows this progression in a very different way, moving from left to right, becoming, uh, as we start out as unconscious incompetence and move all the way over to become unconscious, unconscious competence. So the four stages of learning are just illustrated in a different way, and I threw that in there for the sake of it, and hopefully the colors are not confusing. But let's look at the next illustration. How do we learn? And this is an important thing. And matter of fact, this was done by a research outfit that really came up with a good idea, I think, of understanding the way we assimilate things. First of all, only about 5% of what we are going to hear this morning, you'll probably remember if, if I'm fortunate, and it'll be the Holy Spirit that will help you remember it, not me. The fact is, is that preaching, or lecturing, if you will, is uh, probably the most ineffective way of teaching or training. Next comes reading. If, indeed, you are able to hear and to read, it reinforces what you have heard. And then comes, essentially, the, uh, the audio, visuals, and this is, by the way, why I use PowerPoint. I become, a, I become a real convinced uh, individual when it comes to the use of PowerPoint because I hope that this will help reinforce what I'm saying, not for the sake of me, but for the sake of the gospel. I, I hope that this will help drive home the point. 
So visuals are very important to us, and some people learn better by visuals, or visually, if you will, than they do by hearing or reading. Next comes uh, the, uh, the demonstration of this, and this is why sometimes the most effective way to be taught and trained is to see something demonstrated. That's why they call it on-the-job training. And that's what I did for about uh, six months at Fort Bliss in El Paso. I watched the demonstrations of concepts and practiced them myself till I got that they became second knowledge or second nature to us. Next is discussion groups. To discuss what you have heard and read and saw, hopefully, and seen in practice. That's the value of small groups. That's why we have a small group ministry here, is to help you assimilate the truth of God's word and put it into practice in your life day by day. Next comes the practice by doing. And that's an important thing that we need to participate in. We need to see these things in action. We need to practice our works according to what we say is our faith. And lastly, to teach others is a great way of reinforcing this. This is the visual I have in the back of the study guide, matter of fact. But when I read that last, teaching as a way of reinforcing what we have learned, I thought of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, he wasn't writing that, by the way, to just the pastors that were called Hebrews that living in Rome, because we, we believe, and ever since the word, it was directed to Roman Christians, and Jewish Roman Christians in particular. And all of the illustrations you find through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uses for a purpose to call Jews to Jesus, if you will. But he's saying to them, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need to learn again the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You can't take solid food yet. We're having to give you the milk of the gospel. As Paul talked to the Corinthians, saying the same thing because of their fleshly condition. So the fact is, is that teaching is not the calling or the gift necessarily that we have from the Holy Spirit, as every Christian has gifts, but we need to teach people the Word of God. Let me give you an example. The next slide shows us some examples of teaching. And in particular, this is one of the most illustrative verses that you could ever ask for about the value of teaching, and teaching and training, by the way, done in tandem. It says in Hebrews 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Moses was telling the children of Israel that they need to teach and train their children in the commandments of God. And that's an important thing for us to understand. That is the word. That's one of the examples of teaching. Let's look at another example. In the New Testament, 
we have this that says in Matthew 7.29, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was doing the teaching, not only to his disciples, but also to the, to the multitudes. He taught them as one having authority. And then it says, at the very close of his ministry, Jesus said these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus taught for a purpose. And he's instructing us to do the same thing. We need to be teachers. We need to be trainers, if you will. But teaching is very important in every sense of the word. And that same word is translated about 93 different times in the New Testament. Teaching. Taught. Teaches. Teacher. Let's look at another example of training in this case. What do the scriptures say about training? And this first verse comes from 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six, as King David was singing a song of praise, a long song indeed, from his deliverance, from, uh, regarding his deliverance from the pursuit of King Saul, who sought to kill him. He says, he trains my hands for battle so that my arm can bend a bow of, of bronze. That same thing is repeated in the, in the 18th Psalm. It says the very same thing. And again, uh, it, whether you're reading the NIV or the New American Standard, makes no difference. It's trained. He trains my arm for battle. And it's a very important key word to understand that in the training it has to do here with strength, a physical aspect of training. Let's look at another example. And that would be training in a way that we raise our children. And this verse of Scripture should be familiar to every single one of us. It's a principle by which we need to live as parents of our children and encouraging our grandchildren. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's a Scripture that not only tells us to train a child in the discipline of the Lord, in the admonition of God, but it has a promise associated with it. And sometimes we think that that promise is just impossible to realize. But the fact is, is if you live by faith, if you do what the Bible instructs you to do, it will accomplish what God has intended to accomplish. It is a commandment with a promise. The next verse of Scripture says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And those are the words of Jesus. The teacher is intended, a teacher in the truest sense of the word, as was Jesus himself, as was the Apostle Paul, as were the disciples. They were teachers who were trying to give people the idea of how to live according to the will of God, that they might be like they had learned to live. They were the examples That's teaching by an example, not just a concept, but an example. And lastly, it says here in Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. 
who because of practice have their senses trained, their mind, their will, their emotions, the whole soul, their heart of hearts, the spirit, the innermost being. Our senses need to be trained according to the word of God so that we might be able to discern between good and evil. If there's ever a need today for people to be trained according to gospel truth, to come to the knowledge of the foundational truths of the gospel in every, word, in every way. It's today. Because there is much false teaching out there. Completely false teaching. Mixed in with some truth. Using some of the same terminologies that we hear regarding, to, uh, regarding our faith, but yet a scance of God's truth. And we need to know what that is. And we need to know how to discern it and how to judge it. Let's talk for a moment about the efficacy of training. And that's a word that's kind of wrought with special meaning. Because we're talking about the effective results of what we do with respect to training. Efficacy. What are the effective results? First of all, we say discipleship. We are trained to become effective, fruitful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are taught how to live according to the oracles of God and how we might exemplify the things that we have learned and been taught according to the word of God so that he might be glorified, that our deeds might glorify him, not us, but him. We have been created for good works. We have been designed according to God's will for that purpose. Also, if it is effective discipleship, it's going to be victorious living. Victorious discipleship, meaning that we have defeated the enemy of our souls. Fruitful living, another aspect of it, because he intends for us to bear much fruit to his glory. That is the commandment. And it also, it is a courageous way of living. And let me tell you this, we don't become courageous by accident. It has to be by faith and by training. Think about this for a moment. In World War II in particular, and I, those of you who know me know that I've got a, a fascination I have had since I was a teenager with military history. But in every sense of the word, as you began to, uh, to read about the, especially the campaign in Europe, the Pacific was no exception, it was the same thing. It was horrible to see what happened as the attrition of a particular unit, be it a division or a battalion or a combat group, it made no difference. But as they were wounded and as they were the casualties of war, as they were killed into action, uh, replacements came. Inevitably, those replacements were poorly trained. Those who were veterans of the unit didn't even want to associate with them. In many cases, they ostracized them. They didn't want to know their names. Why? Because they knew they were going to be the first ones killed in action. They were not trained properly. They were not trained as a unit. They were not cohesive in their approach to the battle. And as a consequence, they suffered horrendous casualties. And that's what happens when training is half-hearted or improper or only in part. And that's what happens not only to people in battle. The same thing applies today as it did then. But the fact is that the same thing applies to us in our Christian life. 
If we have been improperly trained or only partially trained, if we've made ourselves available to only be partially trained, if our training is not something we have taken seriously, then we are in for some battle-scarred defeats. And that's what happens to us on many times. The people who should be producing fruit are fruitless instead. So this, this as, aspect of courageous living, training helps us to overcome fear. And as a matter of fact, what's typical of a military situation is that the training is done over and over again till it becomes second nature. They become truly unconscious competence at what they're doing. So they don't have to think about it. They don't have to evaluate. Now, what do I do next? It just comes naturally to them. And it needs to be that way with us in our battles against the enemy of our soul. That's why we need to strengthen our spirit and our soul so that we can become mighty in spirit as John the Baptist was, as Jesus was, in our battle against the enemy of our soul. And that's what we have as an enemy of our soul who seeks to negate us in every way he possibly can. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. As a matter of fact, that's one of the other scriptures that we have. For there in the next, the next visual it says, why need we train at all? Well, guess why? Our battle, our warfare, is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness, of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are fighting a battle whether we want to or not. And the greatest thing that Satan can do to defeat you is to convince you that you're not, for, you're not warring against him at all. If he's deceived you to that degree, you're in trouble. So I would encourage you to understand that all of us fight this war. We are, there are no exceptions. No one has made peace with the enemy of your soul. His intent, as Jesus said, was to sift you like wheat, to destroy you utterly. That's what he wants to do. So the battle that we fight against the enemy is highly important, as it says there in Ephesians 6.12. And this is the reality. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 3, through, 3 through 5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, are not carnal, as it says in the old authorized version, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The destruction of fortresses, the stronghold of the enemy itself. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where we want to be. This is what training and righteousness is all about. This is what we want to achieve. So let's be honest for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself adequately trained, equipped for the work of the kingdom? Are you there yet? Have you achieved it? Are you, have you accomplished it in every way? Are you a unconscious competent, if you will? Have you reached that level of learning? That you know that every the innate action of your soul is to go to God in prayer. Is to turn to him who can strengthen us 
in every aspect. We have to have him, and we learn to become utterly dependent on him as we live according to his will. So have we reached that point where we are adequately equipped for every good work? And that is so important. That is translated in so many different ways in the scriptures about being adequately equipped, competent, being fully equipped, being ready for every aspect of what we do. Second question, are you willing to subject yourself, to submit yourself to God's training? You'll never be effectively trained until you do. You have to make a conscious effort to do this. By the way, training requires a conscious effort. There's an effort on our behalf. It doesn't earn us salvation, but it does earn us fruitful, successful, victorious living if we live according to his principles. So are you ready to subject yourself, to submit to that aspect of training that will help you become a fruitful Christian? Lastly, like an athlete or a dedicated professional, are you ready to commit yourself to such a degree? Training is not easily done. It's not easy. It just doesn't come naturally. It's like learning how to play that piano. It took practice. It takes training. It cannot be done just innately. Uh, now, I, I take that back. There seems to be some people that are gifted by playing by ear, and I, I envy people like that. But the fact is that most of us have to work at that. It doesn't come naturally. We're, we have to work. And some, it is easier than others. But the fact is that we have to make a commitment along those lines to follow Jesus and to live according to his principles. So what is the result of all of this? Be diligent to present yourselves to God as a workman who needs not to be ashamed but handling accurately the word of truth. Handling accurately the word of truth. Don't be a workman who needs to be ashamed. As Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. And by the way, you think, these are the pastoral letters that Paul wrote to Timothy twice and to Titus as well. And you think on, on the surface that he's just referring to those maybe that are called as pastors, teachers. God's given gifts to the church, and one of those gifts is pastor-teachers, who has a purpose in this. But all of us have a role. All of us have responsibilities to be trained in righteousness, in the right and holy living, according to the will of God. So are you willing to make that commitment to such a degree that this becomes the reality, that you become a workman who needs not to be ashamed, a truly fruitful, devoted follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, uh, we come this morning acknowledging of our great need for you, for Jesus, for our Savior and Lord. And Father, we ask that you would enable us to more clearly and fully understand the need for training and righteousness in our lives. We ought to be teachers, yes, Father, but we all have a responsibility to be trained in righteousness 
so that we bear much fruit to your glory and honor. We pray, Father, that you would awaken us to that responsibility, that you would convict us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might become convinced of our need to commit ourselves accordingly. Might we walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Might we bring glory to the name of Christ Jesus in all that we do and say. Might we be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. May we, Father, bring glory to his name, who's worthy of all praise and glory. In his name we pray accordingly. Amen.